Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. We got Jim back today, Eddie Farb in the booth. We got Leon Ford, an activist and author from Pittsburgh. If you like this podcast, definitely subscribe on Apple or Spotify. Leave us a review, share with a friend. Um, this is how we grow. On today's episode, we go into a lot of heavy things. You know, Jim and Leon speaking as Black fathers in survivalist mode in this country. You know, how does Black America cope with what's going on and look towards the future? So listen up. We're going to kick into this. Leon, what we were just talking about is... Let me go. Jim. Let me go into it, Fab. Um, okay. Leon, I was just telling Fab and Ed that I'm gonna take some time off from the podcast, and just in general, I'm I'm reevaluating a lot of things in my life. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with anger. Um, I, I think I'm just fed up with this place and this country and racism and all the shit that we deal with. The pain. In the last three months, I lost my dad. Obviously, we had COVID. You know, I haven't been able to make any money. I have a seven-year-old son who the other day while walking through the park turned around. He stopped and turned around to me and said, we should walk back on it. And when I said to him why, he said to me, the cops are coming. And then I said, and? He said, well, I'm afraid they're going to shoot us. And when a seven-year-old son of yours tells you something like that, which, I mean, I don't have to tell you what the fuck that's like as a person who's been shot by the cops who has a child yourself. You know, there's better than anyone and that shit just gutted me and um and so i don't have i don't have much patience to have any sort of like sweet compromising conversation that's gonna make white people comfortable i've never had that patient and i've never been that person but i definitely don't have that now i don't have the desire for it it's just a very dark time for me i think the only thing i give a fuck about is seeing everything burn down and trying to see what come out of it quite frankly and so I, I don't find myself being able to add anything right now because the other thing also is I want to preserve my, myself in a way. There has been so much of this pain and this violence and this ever-present hate that I can take. By the time you finish process one fucking murder, there's 10 more. So, you know, because of that, just I don't want to, you know, I'm just through right now, man. And I didn't want to do today's podcast because I just don't have the capacity for any of that fucking pain in this moment and the patience for it. But I know that if anyone can understand that, it would be you. So, you know, I just kind of wanted to maybe hear a little bit about, as you've done some amazing things in the last few weeks with the panel with the president and John Lewis and Brian Stevenson, and sometimes coming from those highs and going to your own reality, which I've experienced in many ways myself, can be challenging itself, right? Um, you're sort of like living in two worlds and two bodies and you're trying to make sense of so many things. So anyway, I say all of that to say, you know, I wasn't going to get on this call today um, and I want to take a break. I want to reevaluate things. I also want to stop doing things for free. Um, I find myself just giving myself away for free. Not for free necessarily, but you know, I find myself doing this work, but yet unable to put food on the table sometimes. So all of that has been weighing heavy on me. And that's partly what I was telling the fellas about a few minutes ago. But I would like to perhaps hear your take on this in terms of how you're dealing with these things, because 
in some ways, despite my own challenges and burdens, I know that I'm also really lucky and privileged as fuck, right? And that should not be a thing to say, but, but I am. Um, even the fact that I'm from Haiti, I'm from a black country, which I can go to and just completely take a fucking break from this place, which a lot of African-Americans don't have. They don't know what that's like. So I, I'll be curious to hear right now for you, man, at this very moment of your life, based on what I've just told you about my own struggles right now, how are you dealing with some of these things? And what do you think? Yeah, bro, thank you for sharing that. Um, I think it's important. Uh, that reality is a reality uh, living in America. And it's a reality that, that I live with every day as well. Um, the anger, the frustration, the confusion, the resentment. I think people see my my external. They see... Um, Part of what, you know, for a long time was the mask or, or you, know, you know, I can also describe it as my optimism. They see that and, it, you know, it only paints half a story. And a lot of times people ask me questions based on what they see externally and they get those types of answers, right? The answers of optimism and hope. But the reality is it's, it's like, you know, living in two worlds, right? And which world do I want to pull from as I express, you know, what I feel or as I express what I see. And so like what you just spoke to is part of what I feel on the inside as I reflect on my entire existence here in America without even understanding history. And once I, you know, learn history, um, it made my perspective even a little bit more darker. 100%, bro. Same here, 100%. Yeah, and... and sometimes uh, I wish I didn't know as much as I know. Yeah, but it's like, um, I think a lot of people live live with that luxury. Knowing what you know and knowing what we know, uh, it's, it's truly a calling and a blessing to have the types of relationships that we do have, uh, the intellect that we have, the perspective. Yep that we have and the, the overall lived experiences that we've been blessed with and, and how we leverage those experiences uh, to evoke change. And I, I, I get like, I, bro, like the frustration, bro, you know, I, I hate telling my story over and over again, right? Especially. Uh, Same here, bro. <laughs> it, it's like, Especially when like some some like the the super privileged white folks, bro, who would say, "Oh, oh my," and they completely they completely divorce it from real life and emotions. Like, just tell me a story. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, they literally tell me like, "Wow, you're a survivor." It's fascinating. How'd you do it? You know how how are you how are you happy? How did you forgive? You know, and it's like forgiveness is life or death. If I didn't forget. Leon, do you think? Do you think? I'm sorry. Do you think there is? A, do you think there is a desire in those people to want you to always forgive? Because I find that a part of what makes us so prone to abuse in this fucking place is our fucking ability, with this bullshit Christianity that placed on us, to always say we forgive our fucking oppressors and the people who are killing us. You think sometimes those people say stuff like that because they want you to to tell them that you know you you forgive and and. And you're hopeful because it makes them feel better and less guilty or what? I, absolutely. 
wrote, I wrote a piece called America Whoop My Ass and I Smile. And in that piece, I spoke about forgiveness and people's perspective of me forgiving. I said, I accept the fate of my blackness. My life snatched, snatched away with every encounter of white rage. They hate me because I dared to live. They hate my optimism. Ah, only if they knew that my optimism was a last resort. I'm closer to the edge, may think. One blink away from sobbing, so I hold my breath, refusing to let a tear fall. Big boys don't cry where I come from. Oh, they want me to be feminine. They speak of toxic masculinity, not knowing these traditions kept my ancestors alive. My father is tender but fearless. He earned his respect and gave me mine. He told me not to let them see me sweat, so I grew alligator skin and cried cro crocodile tears. There's no space for me in this white man's world, so I survive. I survive like my father and he like his father. My name is everything. I would do anything for my respect, so I won't tolerate anything less. If this system continues to oppress me, I have no choice but to rebel. I remember the first time I watched Rosewood. Ving Rhames was my favorite character. Like him, society tried to lynch me, but I escaped. I escaped to save my family. I am fearless. Some people in my family may be afraid, but I give them hope. I showed them that they do not have to take these beatings. I showed them that they could be liberated. There's a scene in Rosewood when the brother hid in his mother's casket. I thought he was dead, but he escaped. Black folks sure know how to survive. A town destroyed over a lie reminds me of Amy Cooper. Intentionally lying is a way to destroy a black man's life, instigating a murder on camera for the whole world to see. We were socially conditioned to be oppressed. Who said that slavery was abolished? The only freedom we have is the freedom to consume. Clothes, shoes, cars, and property. Some black folks think that freedom can be purchased by land, they say as if Black Americans didn't own land before just to be murdered on their doorsteps. I'm not afraid to die. I refuse to be murdered on my doorstep over a lie. We have a right to protect ourselves, and I protect my family. Oh, how they love my warm smile, white like the sheet their colleagues wanted to place so badly over my bullet-riddled body. Makes me wonder if I'm an inspiration because I smile, and my love because I'm positive. I don't know. Oh, white America loves it when we are passive. Black folks even love it. You are so brave for forgiving. Uh, that is so inspirational, they say. They commend me for taking a graceful ass whooping. Yes, America whooped my ass and I smile. I guess it's the God in me. I can't control it. Sometimes I want to explode. However, this presence inside of me encourages me to keep pushing, keep smiling, keep going. And I read that and I say that because um, bro, optimism it's like when you come from a, a certain pedigree, bro, it's literally life or death, right? And so for me, I didn't grow up in a church. I don't come from a background where I was conditioned to forgive. I literally was raised to do the opposite. Yeah, me, same, same here, Leon. I'm, I'm Haitian, so, so, you know, with my Haitian background, I, I so. I really experienced that intense uh, anger and frustration. I know, bro, like, my family didn't protest with me, man. Like, I, I come from a type of family where I was organizing protests and I would go link up with my cousins. And they was like, man, you on some sucker shit, bro. We might as well just do something different. 
because you ain't never gonna get justice. And if somebody from the streets did this to you, then it'd be a whole nother story, you know? And so my optimism, I understood that our optimism was a way, uh, another way for me to survive, right? Another way for me, uh, because I knew if I would have did something different, then I, I would literally be dead, you feel me? Like um, Chris Darner, who, you know, Dave Chappelle spoke about in 846, or in prison, right? And if I make that type of decision, who's gonna who's gonna raise my son? Who's gonna who's gonna uh, be there to sow those seeds into my son, right? And so it's like there's a lot of decisions to make, bro. When you're thinking about, um, you know, acting on some of those more stronger uh, emotions, because um, I, I think about Chris Donner, right, and. Uh, some people, I, I've seen people online say, oh, we, I'm tired of this fight. We, we need to really do something. We need, you know, a revolution. It's not going to come from protesting or it's not going to come from lobbying. I think about Chris Darner. He's somebody, you know, who took a stance. And, and those individuals who are even talking about the revolution, they probably don't even know who he is. Right? Same thing with the, uh, with, with, I think there was like another police shooting. Uh, where somebody retaliating against the uh, police officers in Dallas, of like, maybe a year after Chris Darner. Um, yeah, I remember that. And so, like, the anger that we have is, is real. Is it's you know it's justified, and you know every everybody's gonna have their own take. I think it's important for us to have these conversations about anger, right? I, I like you said, like you're tired of you know making white people feel comfortable. And I think that is the problem. You know, for, for too long, we, we've created spaces for them to, to feel comfortable and they shouldn't, right? And so this is why we, we, we should have these conversations about our frustration. We should have, have conversations about our anger and our resentment. I wrote a piece called Give Up to Go Up last year before I left America. And uh, Far could tell you about this. Last year, bro, I just, I couldn't stay, I couldn't stomach America any longer. Literally, like, I left America a week after breakout, Philly, and uh, where I met, you know, a woman there who uh, connected me up to a program called Re Remote Year, where you live remotely. Um, I did a six-month program, so I, I spent a lot of time in Europe, but I had to leave, bro. You know what I'm saying? I had to leave, and, and I'm, I'm feeling called to leave again. Uh, honestly, you know, uh, as I'm, like, growing my business and, and, and doing things, I, I don't think I'm going to live in America, bro. You know what I'm saying? I, because it's like, I, I, there's some people who are very optimistic of, about what's happening right now, and uh, I'm not, bro. I understand how uh, people have turned activism uh, into you know, a business model, right? Um, I mean, I, there's you know conversations that we've had behind the scenes about you know influencers and about the Black Lives Matter movement and Sean King and and Benjamin Crump and you know th these people who are voices of the movement who I you know I question you know their their integrity I I question their commitment to the to the movement versus you know, their commitment to, to self-gain. You know, as somebody who survived the police shooting, as someone who sat in a room with a Benjamin Crump who gave uh, me and my family a script to read, you know, for the news that didn't portray 
what we were feeling in that moment. Uh, that didn't portray what we represented. And, you know, as I see these patterns happen over and over again, as I see more people deny justice based on the way, you know, we've done things in the past, you know, I, 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 I question the movement. You know what I mean? I think the world needs more people like you and I who are angry, who are outraged, who are, you know, comfortable sharing our truths because, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of people, you know, in the world, you know, there's a bunch of people in America who are leading these movements, man, who are falling victim to this campaign uh, to push a political agenda or multiple political agendas that have proven not to work in our favor. And so it's, it's, it's an interesting time. I'm like, yo, do I, do I stay on the plantation and help my people fight? Do I run away? You know, do I become a runaway slave and leave the country? You know, it's, I think, you know, to be a Black American is to be uh, confused. It is to, you know, battle between life and death. It's to battle between, you know, uh, do I fight, you know, physically or intellectually? What does strategy look like? You know, is the work I'm doing, how is the work I'm doing going to benefit my child? If, if I give my life to the movement who would raise my child? And so many other thoughts, man, that we battle with every single day. And, you know, some days I have thoughts that are more optimistic. Other days I have more, more thoughts that I wouldn't call it pessimistic, but they're more realistic. But I try to, I try, I try to always be hopeful, right? Because I, I don't believe optimism means that you have more hope. It says realism doesn't mean you have no hope. I think realism is just being realistic and acknowledging exactly what's going on and, and trying our best to find, you know, solution. And so uh, each of us, we, we have a duty. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the Black experience without struggle or without being resilient and living, you know, within a system where it's literally life or death. And I don't know if we'll experience that in our lifetime. And I think, you know, that's another thing where we have to, we think about and we process things that a lot of white people, uh, well, not, well, white people in general don't have to process. And so, yeah, bro, this is why I, go to, I have to go to therapy, bro. I had therapy yesterday because it's just learning more about Same here, bro. Black like American experience, yep. understanding that I've developed so many coping mechanisms as a result of racism and white supremacy. And these coping mechanisms came without me even being aware that I was experiencing racism and white supremacy. And as I become more aware of racism and you know, systemic oppression, and I, as I also become more aware of these coping mechanisms, it gets harder for me to be living that optimism. And so I, I believe like I'm growing more comfortable in the realism of my circumstances, but hope remains. Yeah. Yeah, no, Leon, I was just asking you, um, I, I was saying to you that um, a part of what, what I've been thinking about and building, especially for my son is, is to move him back to Haiti, or at least to give him options. I remember last year when I was in I was in London. I went to London for the first time, and I felt so much freer and safer 
only for one reason. And the reason was that the cops there do not carry guns. I never forget that I saw this, this traffic stop. The cop stopped these kids. Uh, I was in South London and the cops pulled over and cut this kid off and then jumped out and pulled the kid out of the car. And the whole thing, the experience was traumatic for me, not because of how it happened there, but mostly because of what I'm accustomed to here. But the stop, the police stop was literally one of the nicest stops that I've seen in my life, which tells you a lot about, again, in which context I was looking at this stuff. And, you know, my, my dream is to build a really nice home back home in Haiti and, you know, and go back and forth and give my son the option to be able to go there and to get away from the shit. And also, if he wants to go to school in a place like London, which still gives them that New York City vibe, but that's a lot safer in terms of how they do things over there and the gun culture and even racism in some ways look different over there than it does here. When you say that, you know, you were able to escape to get away from this country and thinking about leaving constantly, is that something you also think about for your son also? Absolutely. I, I, I think, uh, you know, similar to you, it's giving him that choice, that option. Right. And um, yeah, giving them that option, bro, to to see beyond, you know, the plantation. And I use the plantation, you know, intentionally because I was in Dubai. I have an uncle who, who lives in Dubai and um, him, along with nine other of his friends, they wrote a, bo a book called Going Global. And, and it's about black men, uh, 10 black men who left America. And, you know, I read this book and I read about, you know, the, why they left, you know, how they made the transition, how uh, they and their families adapted to life outside of America. And it was so inspirational to me because, you know, uh, for about maybe a, a year and a half or two years, I, I was researching, you know, about different expats who had left America. And most of these ex expats that I would read about or that I would watch on YouTube, they were white. So I, I, I wanted to know, like, you know, what, what, what would it be like as a black American, you know, to leave? And so when my uncle sent me this book and he invited me to come to uh, Dubai, it was really life-changing. And he has a friend who asked me a question. He was like, you know, what type of slave is free but stays on the plantation? And I was like, damn, oh. damn, 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 damn. That's uh, painful. I told him my Uncle Tom. He said, I said, Uncle Tom, right? He said, nah, Black American. Uh. And, and so, but, 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 Leon, is that partly because in some ways, right, like, I, I've thought about this a lot, you know, how I thought about it also from the angle of the privileges that I have, right? Like, I'm both an insider and an outsider here in this country. I'm Black, right? So the minute anyone sees me, I'm just another Black man, but yet, I was born in the first black republic in the world. And so I know what it's like to be a first class citizen. I know what it's like for power and beauty and everything that looks like you to be cherished and revered. And I know that African-Americans for generations, despite the fact that they've built this whole shit, they've been slaughtered, they've been through everything you can possibly imagine, all sorts of terrorist acts. They don't have that point of reference to see themselves outside of this country. And in some ways, Besides Native Americans, this place belongs to them. It belongs to y'all. And I, and I struggle with making the connections between 
being black outside of America versus being black in America, because I think the oppression, Leon, is global. I mean, America, France, and Great Britain fucked my country. They, I mean, they literally destroyed us, right? So on one hand, despite the rich history and the access I have and the point of reference I have and the ability to escape this hell, I still know that the struggle, again, that we're battling and fighting has an international reach. So when you refer to, you know, that conversation with your uncle and that gentleman in, in Dubai, is it hard to, to accept that reality, but also looking at African-Americans here and understanding why perhaps they have stayed on that plantation despite the fact that they've, they've quote-unquote been free? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's an interesting, interesting conversation to have, bro, because it's like, one, to leave, most people who leave are coming from a place of privilege. Let, let's just, you know, say that. And then uh, to think about our global struggles, right, as uh, Black people, you know, where, wherever you go, you go, you're going to experience racism and a history of, of oppression. Uh, and so to, to, to think about that, I, I had to think about when, you know, some of the slaves left the South to go uh, up North, right? They were still experiencing racism, right? But it wasn't to the extent that they did, you know, back on the plant, plantation. Yeah that, yeah, that liberal racism, which in some ways is more insidious and more fucking painful, if you ask me. And, and Leon, I, I'm really big on languages, and I think two things that I've been trying to change in my own vocabulary, which I would like to hear your views on, is using the, the term slaves, right? Which I think that our people were enslaved. We were never slaves. We were enslaved by white people. And the other term I've been trying to think more intentionally about is supremacy, as it relates to white supremacy. I, I, I don't know about you, Leon, but I'm curious to, to know whether you find it true that someone can also call themselves supreme and better than you, but yet hate you and try every measure possible to kick you and to keep you down. So I don't want to deviate too much from where you were going, but in your response, I was wondering if you can incorporate that in it a little bit. Yeah, I definitely agree with you in terms of language, right? I don't know, you, you just enlightened me on that a little bit, man. And so, uh, as, as I write, I, I haven't wrote a lot about slavery or slaves, but um, as I continue to write, I'm definitely going to adopt to say people are enslaved because to say a slave sometimes people may take that as the choice. Exactly, right? exactly. Especially our kids, right? One of the things I do, Leon, is I teach my son mostly about black power, meaning that positive reinforcement of who we are. Um, I try not to beat the drum of slavery too much. Now, not to say he won't know that part of history, but I, I try to ensure that, at least for me, because I know from the world, Leon, he's going to get all the bullshit that we're not and that we're inferior, that we this, with that. So for me, to try to counterbalance that, I make sure that I talk to him about how, you know, the first human being ever came from the motherland and how the country his dad's from was the first black republic. And I just talked to him about all the greatness that we've had and how we were the founders of civilization. And, and all of that to me is a part of, again, changing that language and the way which we pass information down to our kids. But also when we're talking to these white audiences, right, that language is matter and that how we use it and what we think about it can also be a part of this fight that we're, we're involved in. And I wanted to, I, you know, I just wanted to, I, I think that 
there's a lot of, you know, history is, is important, but there's histories that are written in certain narratives. And I think Southern white history creates a narrative that enslaved people were sort of docile and were happy and were kind of content and, and not wanting to leave the plantation. But I mean, I think that that, that is in the effort to obscure. I mean, you could, we, we, you know, we hear about like Nat Turner and you know, we saw the Nat Turner uh, movie, you know, 1830s, um, you know, sort of uprising and everything. And I think we look at that as sort of like an anomaly as like, oh, Nat Turner was one of a kind. He really wasn't. Nat Turner was actually, there were a million, you know, Nat Turners in the South. And Nat Turner was actually pretty much part of the rule, not the exception. You know, there were hundreds and hundreds of slave rebellions in the South that either were completely kept secret out of fear of emboldening other communities and plantations, or they were, you know, they they were part of sort of local news and, and you know, didn't travel nationally or whatever. So, I mean, you know, I just want to say that there is resistance as a form of sort of rebellion. There's there's the uprisings, there's the killings. But, the, but Leon, like you said, there is also the fleeing. You know, fleeing is an act of resistance. You know, if if you yourself are fleeing to the north or Canada, you know, oftentimes folks are sending back for their families or they're trying to make money in order to buy their relatives. Um, and a lot of them successfully did that. And even, you know, people don't look at the civil as at the Civil War as a slave rebellion. I do. You know, two hundred thousand black soldiers fought for the Union. One hundred and fifty of them were actually enslaved people that had to run away and leave the Southern plantations in order to enlist in the Union and risk being re-enslaved, let alone dying. So, I mean, the Civil War is a huge slave rebellion as well. And even I look at the, you know, the Great Migration, which my grandparents were a part of. Six million people from the South, from Jim Crow South, flee to the North. You know, did they know that they were going to be segregated and redlined? No, not, they, they probably didn't know that, but they knew that whatever was up North was better than in the South. You know, I look at that as a form, an act of resistance. And, and rebellion, you know, six million people over five or, or six decades, you know, it completely changed the demo of, of, of the country, you know, and, and I was raised up north and northeast as, as a result of it, you know, and, and, and probably um, lived a, a markedly better life than I would have if I was still in Mississippi, if I was in Mississippi, you know what I mean? You know, so I just want to, you know, sort of throw that in as, as that form of separatism and that form of leaving, even if they can't literally leave the country, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's that's important. Uh, that's important. And I think I think Leon, you you hit on something. You said you know, and it's something I'm struggling with, right? Because I know the access I have. I know the things I have access to. I know the people I have access to. Which, by the way, all of them are tied in some ways to racism. Even the good things, right? Um, every fucking person I know with money, I would say, not every, but I would say, ninety percent of them are white with those resources and those infrastructures and that power. And, and as you said, I know that the way this whole thing was designed, that a kid who's from the world which I'm from is less likely to have access to those kind of resources. So in the middle of yeah. all this shit trying to deal with my own mental health, I also have to think about what are the responsibilities that I have because the access which I have to things and people. And again, as you said earlier, my ability to speak to issues that perhaps some of my peers not able to speak to at the moment. And that makes things a bit more complicated too, because you're looking at the privilege and the access and your responsibility to the world and where you're from and what you're supposed to do. But then you're also looking at self-preservation at the moment, because this shit is, this shit is heavy on your mind, man. The body, the mind, the soul, the spirit and everything. 
So, you know, that struggle is very real and I understand it too. Yeah, Jim, it's funny. I, I had this conversation with my mom and this just shows to the degree that, you know, my mom's a, a Bolivian immigrant, right? They came here with like no money. My mom didn't speak any English. She came here in sixth grade, not speaking a lick of English. I'm sure a similar situation to you. But my mom has very light skin complexion, right? She doesn't look like what you like the average Bolivian. And it's mainly because like most of my ancestry is like colonial Spain, right? Um, so even though she came as this like poor Bolivian girl who didn't speak a lick of English, she was able to assimilate very quickly. One, she was, just happened to be, I think, a, a pretty bright person, hardworking person, but she was never really, for the most part, qualified as like uh, some sort of like Latin person or this or that. Her whiteness, I think, and I asked her about it. She was like, absolutely. She's like, I didn't think about it at the time, but that definitely helped me bump up. That same thing is not afforded to other people. And Leon, you wrote a sentence or a thing in the article you were talking about earlier, but you said, I wonder if white people dream of escaping the reality. I wonder if they ever have the conflict of loving their skin so much while simultaneously hating the pain that it brings. I wonder if they occasionally hate themselves until they feel guilty for portraying their ancestors. I love my brown skin, golden red, caramel and glaze. My, my skin looks battered and bruised. My skin is flawless with the blood stains and residue of gunpowder. And it's like, yeah, the inherent whiteness, there's no ability to think any of those things. Like even when you are an immigrant, even when you are technically like a, a person of color, right, with background, there's an inherent difference within America of blackness and the way it's treated in other things. It, it's weird thinking about the fact that my story, my mom's story could have been different if her, you know, if some of the indigenous like Bolivian that we had just came out more in our skin and just like that fucked sense of how this is only a thing depending on the layers and degree of darkness of yeah. skin. Yep, it's an in, yep, it's an invention of whiteness, um, for, and, and which is which is just a tool created to position power in society, right? And Fab, you talk about something that I think it's critical we don't often talk about is somehow sometimes how those other quote unquote minorities, again another word I'm very leery of because we're not a minority across the globe. We're only a minority in America. So I don't love that word. But those other minority groups, you know, as we've talked about, as much as they're able to assimilate, which they do, a lot of times they themselves shut the door on the darker part of where they come from, right? Like, we know that Latinos and Asian Americans and others in many ways benefit from Black oppression and anti-Blackness, which is partly why a lot of them aren't a part of these struggles, because as long as we're catching hell, then you know, some people see it as they're just skating by while we deal with these things and these struggles and these issues. I mean, one of the things that struck me so profoundly was how many white people were at these protests and how many non, non-white people who were not black that weren't there, like, you know, like the Latinos and the Asians. And I'm like, this is insane. But I think a part of that has to do with, again, the direct pain which black people experience in this country, sadly, benefit so many other groups, including folks who look like us or folks who should be able to share our struggles, but they don't. Um, and, and, and a lot of it is not because they are bad people and it's out of bad intentions. Some of them, they just want to hide. They want to just put their head down and work hard and, and, and try not to get in America's business because they don't want to become the target. So Jim and, so Jim and Leon, I, w- I want to call out something. I just thought about it, but you know, Jim, you're, ta- you're thinking through what does it mean to maybe 
build something in Haiti or spend more time there or have, you know, CJ, you know, there, Leon, you've talked about the fact that you've already spent some time, you know, traveling. And the funny thing is like, this is something, you know, it's like different cultures and groups. This is like what's done, right? It, it shouldn't even be something that is looked upon in any negativity that you're running away. Traveling is the great, I mean, it's obviously a luxury, but it's like one of the great things in life. It's, it's why Jewish culture has birthright, right? Allowing, you know, Jewish people to go back to Israel in a certain age to understand their culture and people and things. It's, it's why, you know, even in college, as privileged kids who get to go to college, a lot of them do like study abroad programs and whether they stay or go. So it, it's only this like twisted almost notion that the people who suffered the most in this fucked up experiment uh, which is America, would have to feel in any shape or form that leaving, whether permanently or temporarily, was anything less than enriching for them. But of course, it's always like, if you're not the utmost activist or the utmost this or that, you're somehow, you know, almost like betraying other people around you, which is like this crazy, like fucked up cycle where it's like everyone else is allowed to travel around or or, or learn new things or you know, work on themselves. Why wouldn't it be the same thing for Black Americans? Well, Fab, that's that's directly connected to what we've been talking about, right? You can't divorce racism from poverty, from exposure, from the ability to travel freely. I mean, geez, man, I I I often marveled and so jealous sometimes when I see white people in Black countries and brown countries enjoying the fuck out of it. With no worries in the world. I mean, President Obama wrote about this in Dreams from My Father. You know, he was talking about his first trip to Kenya. He said when he first got to Kenya, he saw how white people were just there chilling, roaming the streets and just, just, just living. And he said, what the fuck? I escaped America to come here, hoping that these people wouldn't have as much power and ownership over this place. And here they are doing the very same shit they do back home in the black country, which I can't do back in my own country. So you're right, Bob. These things should not be a privilege. It should just be a part of life as they are for so many white and wealthy Americans, which obviously class and socioeconomic status plays a major part in it, which you can't, again, divorce from racism and so many of these other things. But the same is true even for poor whites and how they see the world and how they move in the world and, you know, the ability to travel and be exposed to different people and different things as not a, as, not as a luxury, but just as, as a fact and as a right. I had an uh, interesting conversation with a friend she is uh, Egyptian, uh, but she grew up in Canada. And so one day she asked me, uh, she said, Leon, what are you? And I said, I'm black. <laughs> and she's like, no, like, like, what are you? I said, well, well African-American. She's like, no, where's your, where's your family from? Where's your people from? I was like, I don't know, Africa somewhere. I don't know. And she found it so fascinating. She was like, yo, like, this is, insane she's like you're like i'm egyptian and i you know i didn't have to explain to her you know uh america's history and i think even like you jim it's like you you know you can go to haiti right and I, again it's a privilege because it's like most you know black americans who you know are battling the struggle every day you know they they may not even be aware of you know, the impact that this systemic oppression is having on their mental health, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, we, we don't just think about leaving. 
I never thought about it until, you know, I had a mentor who left, right? And when I talked to some of my, you know, cousins or uh, some of my peers about it, you know, they, I mean, a lot of them never left the east side of Pittsburgh, right? I have friends on the north side who never came to the east side. Um, bro, bro, think about I, I, know kids, I know kids in Brooklyn that's never left the full block radius which they're from. Exactly, man. And so I think, you know, it, it's education. It's exposure, then it's understanding that, like, bro, like the the world is my oyster. I can I can go anywhere, you know. I can I'm not confined to this four block radius. But Leon, let me ask you this, Leon. Do you think that because I I thought about this when my son turned to me the other day and said we should go back, and that the police might kill us. First, the first thing that happened is first your heart dropped, right, and you you choke. You literally choke. You don't know what to say. And then you try to come up with something that would make sense, something that would allow you to validate the statement made by this kid, which is a very fucking real statement. But also, I know once that thing's in, then my son becomes imprisoned, right? I know that he's going to move differently in the world. Every time, not only when he sees the cops, but every time he sees white people, he's going to start shrinking himself, which I believe we do a lot, right? Um, racism, one of the things that it does to you that's so destructive is it makes you shrink yourself. So I've been very intentional about not shrinking myself. I walk into any place knowing that I know as much, I'm as brilliant, I'm as needed. You know, I hold my dick up and I fucking keep my head up high. And I do that partly because of the people I've been able to learn from in terms of how they walked in rooms. Sorry, Leon, for cursing with your son around. Um, but, but in that moment, I didn't want to imprison my son while also validating this reality. And what you're referring to now, our inability sometimes to move beyond the blocks in one side of a neighborhood to another side, a lot, I believe, has to do with the fact that racism literally limits the body and the way we move and the way we perceive things and the things that we think belongs to us, the things we think we have a right to versus the things that we don't think that are available to us. So again, it all goes back to anti-blackness and how we are conditioned to move in, in, in this world, which is a part of this conversation we're having now, which you're describing in terms of much exposure we can get outside of our full block radius. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, I don't know, it, it, learn helplessness versus learn activism or, or self-advocation. We got to teach you know, our children and our people to advocate for themselves. You know, and not to allow racism and, you know, systemic oppression to close us off from the world, you know, and, and, and the more we have these types of conversations, the more people will uh, become aware and they will, you know, know that, you know, I, I can, you know, I can go to this next neighborhood. I can, you know, uh, leave the country. Let me, let me connect with my, my Haitian brother and see what Haiti is like. Let me, let me. Uh, let me search and, and find uh, my community, my tribe. Um, yep. But it, it's also interesting because, like, my son, because he's seen me in my activism, right, and he's seen me using my voice. You know, he he has said things like, "Yo, why can't we? Uh, why can't we hurt police officers?" You know what I'm saying? Like, I want I want to learn karate. So if a police officer tries tries to hurt you again. I can beat him up or he asks, you know, if he can get his gun license and he's seven years old. You know what I mean? And so I'm like, dang, man, like I got to I'm trying to educate him 
uh, so he can think intellectually. So like he's not like sixteen, you know, trying to you know make other moves, you know. Uh, so that's another uh, aspect of it. It's like it's so complicated, right? Like you don't want your child, you know, to shrink himself. Uh, but it, as for me, I'm like, yeah, I don't want my child to grow up trying to put his life on the line, you know, uh, and, and, and retaliate against, you know, the system. And, you know, in theory, that'll make me proud, but the action is like, you know, I, that, that makes me afraid. Yeah, because, you know, it comes with a price. Exactly. Yep. And the, and, and the, the truth is, what are we willing to sacrifice? And and the more I think about power in that sense, Leon, the more I, the less hopeful I am because people don't give up power, man. Yeah. Um, it is true that there is enough for all of us to live comfortably, but but people don't give things up, which is also why you know I, I'm struggling with these discussions because I'm like, at what point do they become actions? And when someone do not have to put actions behind their words, a lot of times they don't. And you and I, we don't have that luxury. I mean, it's just life, man. <laughs> you know, it's not theory. It's not activism. It's not social media shit. Like, this is life. Jim, can I ask you a question? So, yes, and sir. actually, it's for, it's for really you and Leon. Because I know you guys, you know, the thing you're probably the, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I feel like the, the thing you guys are most passionate about really is truth-telling, but I'll just say the form of it is writing. Right, like I, that's where I see like both of your crafts really coming to truth. Um, yeah, that's true. You, know, you, you you both have written books. You write articles. You know, you write. You're both writing scripts. Do you think that's still a form that you both feel passionate about uh, within being? You know, you speak of action. You think that's still an action measure you feel good about? Yeah, hundred percent, Bob. I mean, you know, I again, I said that I'm I'm conflicted because a big part of my life is trying to figure out exactly what is it that Jim is going to give to this movement, right? I mean, I know what I've given. I know what I have to give in some ways because, again, this is just life, right? I don't have too many options. Being Black, in some ways, inherently, you have to pick up the social quilt, and your job is to add a little piece to that quilt, as my brother Edwin said. And so I know that's the case for me, and I do view storytelling and writing as one of those tools that have available to me. And I do think that one of the reasons why racism continues to exist and oppression exists is because how effective and strategic America has been keeping people away from each other, especially people that have so much in common, that segregation has kept us away from each other. So in many ways, we don't know each other. And so when you've been fed a certain type of information about a group of people that you do not know, you don't get to communicate with, that you don't get to have dinner with, then those things can become true for you because I think that proximity is everything. And so, yes, Rob, I say that to say, I think storytelling and writing and film and all sorts of storytelling, whether it's public speaking, whether it's writing a screenplay, whether it's writing an op-ed or writing a memoir and putting our life and our journey out there to be dissected and, and to be explored, I do think that is one of the best tools that at least I have available to me. Now, the struggle comes when I start to question whether people who are consuming that content are just engaging in sort of like poverty porn, or they're just engaging in it because they find it to be trendy, or they're actually really trying to understand this stuff and trying to take actions. 
Now, granted, I don't expect those individuals to know what it's like to be me because being black is very unique. And I mean unique in every way. The beauty of it, specialty of it, struggle that comes with it. The full range of blackness to me is there's nothing in the world like it. So I don't expect someone who's not black to understand it um, just simply by consuming content and reading and listening to podcasts. But I do think that at some point, actions have to become the main goal. So, yes. Yeah, I, I agree as well. Um, you know, speaking truth, man, um, it's so important. You know, it's important for us not to water down our, our truths, our lived experiences. And it's important for us, you know, to continuously share our stories, our perspectives, our insights with people. And so it's like, it's something that I'm committed to doing. Uh, it's something I, I feel like since I began going to therapy, my truth uh, or, or, or my voice has become stronger. Uh, after I was shot, I, I, I had to become like the perfect victim right uh, especially being that you know i pulled off like when, when i pulled off the question then became why did you pull off kind of like um the brother in uh atlanta who was just murdered uh last week uh, i think his name was like rashad rashad brooks exactly rashad brooks i mean this dude you know spent several minutes you know as a citizen trying to leading with the officers <laughs> Exactly. He, if he, he was a white dude, they would have fucking walked away and said, have a good night, sir. Exactly. Especially after seeing that video, Leon, the dude was literally pleading. You know, he was calm. He was rational. He's like, you know, I had a drink. I don't want to drive. And like the whole shit, like at what point do you say, okay, man, have a good night? They basically stripped him of his manhood. And people yep. wonder, like, why did he run? Why did he try to fight him? You know, same thing with my case. Bro, these officers, officers that shot me testified in court that Leon was kind, Leon was polite, <laughs> Leon was respectful, the entire traffic stop. Until we tried to pull out the car and he pulled off. And the all white jury, they did not question what happened. The traffic stop was almost 20 minutes long, right? They didn't question what was going on for that 20 minutes. They said, oh, you pulled off. So everything that happened before that, nothing that happened before you got shot mattered, right? Talking about, talking about Black Lives Matter, huh? <laughs> and, and, and the jurors were instructed, right? Like the jury instruction, the officer only had to prove that he was in fear for his life at the moment he shot me. And the jurors were instructed not to consider any facts before that happened. It's crazy crazy man um well i mean i know we're gonna close out here but we started at the top of this you know in the sense of kind of just being frustrated with these conversations and obviously jim i appreciate you joining with this one regardless of kind of where we go into hiatus after this because i think there's something to be said as leon said of just just letting some stuff out and just sharing your truths and obviously both of you some of these things it's you know, it's beyond, exhausting is not the right word for the amount that you've had to talk about these things. But it's, it's, I think, important of how we can shift the conversation and how we can shift, you know, wording. And I'm glad to hear, you know, I think the action you guys take with your writing, it plays a dual side. I think writing for all of us can be very therapeutic. 
there's something to the process. So it's something that you, that no one can take away from both of you. It's something that you guys own, that you guys get to enjoy, and it's and it's and it's your voice. So on on that end, I love the fact that you two both have it as an avenue for yourself and no one else. And on the other end, selfishly for myself and other people, I'm glad for you to continuously put out your work because even though I think. And the way you're looking at things, I get it. Nothing's fast enough. The macro change isn't coming fast enough. Maybe you guys should leave, whatever that situation. I do know that, unfortunately, it's impossible for the two of you to know how many people's lives are changed every time they read your work because you, you can't see it or, or feel it. And that's a very frustrating thing. Uh, and I don't think that's a bullshit throwaway statement just to say to add some positivity to this. I truly no, no, no. I, I, I mean, you know, the amount of, emails and texts and calls and shit I get from all over the world, all over the country of the shit that I've done, whether it's my book or whatever it is, you know, it's never, an, it's never a question really of, of how much I know about the impact of what I say and what I do and what I've shared with the world. I don't think that's been a question to me, you know, you know, writing for me is, is both hard because I'm not a natural writer. What I mean by that is that, you know, I didn't go to school for writing in particular, and English is my third language. So there's something about that, especially I enjoy. I enjoy things that I'm, I come in at and I'm already bad at it. I mean, there's a challenge right there, but also it is therapeutic for me to write. And a big part of what I was saying earlier when we first started out was because I want to focus more on writing right now. You know, I'm getting, I'm getting going on my second book. I have some things I'm writing. Um, and in some ways, when I'm struggling with that paper and the pen, it, it's, um, it gives me more clarity than just having some of these conversations that I've been having. Because I don't have a, a person to be frustrated at, but just the words and the pen and the paper. So, yeah, man, I, you know, I appreciate that. And I, I get it. And I, I know that you know, this work is long and it's challenging and that it's my duty because it's been the duty of everyone that came before me that made it just a little bit easier for me, whatever that means. So, you know, look, it's your journey. No one else can know your journey. If that means, I remember someone said something to me, I was feeling really frustrated about some people's work, but they were like, would you rather someone do incremental, but hard work every single day or take some time off, maybe call it a year or two, but then come back with the focus and the resolve for like that bigger idea that could like make bigger change. And I was like, I I hadn't thought about it that way. And I just think that everyone goes about it in the way they need to go about it. And I think that's the important thing. I, I know even as like a third party listening to the two of you have your conversations, you both know how hard this is. There's resolve, but there's also an understanding of the growth that you can have. And that, that can mean, you know, traveling from East Baltimore to West Baltimore or West, you know, South, South Pittsburgh to North Pittsburgh. That can mean traveling from New York to Miami, or that can mean, you know, traveling to Haiti. Uh, I think there's different geographic uh, growth points for everyone. And I think obviously we've talked about the understanding that not everyone can do that, but where you have the opportunity to, to not be afraid of like what people might think of it and understand that it is your journey and it's okay for you to choose um, some healing and growth. So I appreciate you guys. Leon, is there any uh, last words you want to throw in before we uh, wrap this thing up? 
Uh, no, man, I just, you know, I want to thank y'all, man, for this opportunity. Thank you, Jim, uh, for sharing your truth and for, you know, creating a space for us to, to really, you know, speak what we sincerely feel in a, in a, in a very organic way, right? Uh, you know, I appreciate y'all. Yeah, same here, Leon. Thanks, man. I, I you know, again, dude, I... <sighs> I, you know, I know what my journey's been, and shit, that's been enough. So I, I, I won't even sit here to try to remotely imagine what, what the heck it's like to, to have gone through what you have been through, man. So, um, yeah, bro, so I appreciate you, man. Much love, fellas. Appreciate you guys. Yep. Later, y'all. Right.